Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time together. Father, we do thank you for this day that you have given to us. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for sending your son, the Lord Jesus, the ultimate good Samaritan, to to enter onto this highway of life where we were all lying, dying, and dead in our sins and trespasses, and that he, in mercy and compassion, reached down to help us and save us. We thank you for that. And, Father, as we learn this lesson about being neighbors to anyone in need who you put across our path. I just pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, convict and teach according to every need here. I thank you, Lord, that you have taught me so much and convicted me because that's what your word is all about, convicting and looking into the mirror and changing ourselves so that we are more Christ-like. And I pray that each of us, as we leave here this morning, would be more committed to being more like the Good Samaritan, who is a picture of you. And we pray these things, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen. All right, the Lord's 17th recorded parable in our Life of Christ study is found in Luke 10. Um, Actually, in verses 30 to 35, that's the actual parable, but we're going to be looking at verses 25 to 37. And it is one of these parables that gets right down to where the rubber meets the road. And I thought about the fact that I could say where the robber meets the road in this particular case. With the one scene of a compassionate man bending down to care for a total stranger in distress, Jesus compels us to see that Christianity is to be a way of living. It is not just a religion of pious platitudes or abstract concepts that are pie in the sky for the sweet by and by. It is a faith that is just as real today as we live in this world as it is going to be in the tomorrow of the next world. And it expresses itself, Christianity should express itself, if we're going to be Christ-like, in selfless, merciful, unconditional, practical ways that show forth the love of God. Now, this story of a traveling Samaritan who gave aid to a robbed, beaten, and half-dead stranger is a story that has definitely left an indelible imprint on the conscience of mankind. You can go anywhere around the world and people will have heard of this very famous parable. It, in fact, was even, did you know this? Any of you remember? Some of you were alive at the time, but it was even mentioned in one of the presidential inaugural addresses. Does anybody know what president mentioned the Good Samaritan parable? It was Franklin D. Roosevelt mentioned the Good Samaritan. In fact, what he did was he declared a dedication of our nation, the United States of America, to the policy of the Good Samaritan. And I am, I am one of those who is very, very proud of the fact that our country has so frequently in its short history been the Good Samaritan of this world. You think about it. Who else is the Good Samaritan of this world other than us? And I think, I'm very proud of that. And I think that is one of the reasons why the Lord has blessed our country um, in spite of all of our sins. He has blessed us more than we deserve. And I think one of the reasons is because we have been the Good Samaritan of the world. And I pray that we will continue to be the Good Samaritan of this world. Now, it's also interesting to notice how by this one parable, if you think about this, the Lord Jesus was able to so completely change the attitude toward a name. You know, as we have learned throughout our Life of Christ study, when a Jew spoke the word Samaritan, it was generally with a degrading smirk on his face or with scorn in his voice, wasn't it? It was a term not only that they used for the mongrel mixed race of the, of the Samaritan people, but the Jews also used it to speak of anyone who they loathed and wanted to revile and mock. And we have seen this in John eight forty eight, not too long ago, when they said to Jesus, what? Thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil. However, by way of this one parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan, the Lord Jesus was forever able to lift the name Samaritan from that of degradation to one of dignity. Just think about how many charitable organizations and hospitals and other good institutions and operations have included the name Samaritan in their titles. I can think of like the Samaritan's Purse. I know there's hospitals that have the name Samaritan, etc., etc. So he really rescued the word And he lifted the Samaritan peoples from their place of reproach by making the hero of his story here a Samaritan. Now, he could have have made the hero a Greek. He could have made the hero a, a Roman. He could have made him a Jew, right? 
or some other Gentile, um, but instead he chose to make his hero a Samaritan. And of course, also in lifting up the name Samaritan, he did so by having this good Samaritan a picture of himself because he is the ultimate good Samaritan. And I don't know why he did this, but perhaps it was sort of as a reward to the Samaritan people for having been the first ones to ever recognize the fact that he was the Christ, the Savior of the whole world. Remember that back in John chapter 4, verse 42? And um, by the way, I'm just going to throw this in. We haven't gotten to this yet in our Life of Christ study, but when we get to where the Lord healed ten lepers, do you remember there was only one who turned back to thank him and fall at his feet and worship him? And what was he? He was a Samaritan, too. Interesting. We have a two-part outline for today's study. We're going to look at the lawyer's temptation and the Lord's teaching. First of all, let's look at verses 25 to 29, the lawyer's temptation. It says in verse 25, and behold, and whenever it says behold, by the way, it's just kind of like verily, verily. We've talked about when the Lord says verily, verily, it's like, listen up. What I'm going to say is extremely important. Everything I say is important, but verily, verily, this is very important. Whenever it says behold, this is also something that, although it may look very simple on the surface, it's profound. It's deep. So when you read the word behold, it means listen up again and get into the depths of this because it's going to be deep. All right. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him. Tempted who? Tempted Jesus, saying, Master, what shall I do? to inherit eternal life. And uh, Jesus said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he, the lawyer, answering, said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. But he, the lawyer, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Okay, we'll stop right there for now. When exactly this incident took place, we do not know. Now, some have speculated that it may have occurred while the Lord's 70 disciples were out on that mission venture, and Jesus and his 12 apostles were still in the vicinity of Jerusalem. Now, whether that's true or not, I don't know, but I do know in the last little section of uh, Luke chapter 10, we find Jesus in Bethany with Martha and Mary. And Bethany was only two miles for, from, uh, from Jerusalem. So this may very well have been the situation that he stayed close to Jerusalem after he sent out his 70, and that's when this incident took place. What we do know is that on one particular day, uh, when apparently the Lord was doing what he usually did, and that was teaching a group of people, a certain lawyer, and it's interesting to me how many times Luke uses the word certain. That's just, this is a piece of trivia, but go through, go through the book of Luke and see how many times he says the word certain. A certain lawyer, a certain woman, a certain da-da-da-da-da. That was one of his favorite words. But a certain lawyer stood up and he asked Jesus a very, very important question, one we'll look at in a minute. Now, understand that this man who asked the question was not a judicial kind of lawyer, as we think of lawyers today. Elsewhere, lawyers were called scribes, kind of one and the same thing. He, and Jewish lawyers were much more a part of the religious system of that day than they were of the judicial system. So this man was a theologian as opposed to an attorney. He wasn't an attorney like we think of lawyers today. It would have been this man's official business to study the law, to interpret the law, to teach the Old Testament and all the traditions and added teachings of the, of the rabbis, and to guide the people on how they were to put the law and all those added traditions to practice in their lives. Now, some have tried to make this particular lawyer here, you know, they've tried to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that his question to Jesus was asked in sincerity. And the question was, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? However, there's a rather significant problem in trying to make this man into a nice guy. And that problem comes from the Greek word or Greek verb used for tempted, where it says in verse 25, and the lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, 
Now that particular Greek word is only found two other times in the New Testament. One of them is in Matthew 4, 7, and that's after Satan's first temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. And the Lord said to him, it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. That's not a good form of the word tempt, is it? The second time, the only other time that this word is found in the New Testament is in 1 Corinthians 10, 9, where the Apostle Paul said this. He said, neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them have also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. That's not a good use of this word, is it? So when Luke 10.25 tells us that this lawyer stood up and tempted Jesus, and the same word is used of Satan and others who were destroyed by serpents because of trying to tempt Jesus, we know that this man's motive was not a good motive. Furthermore, we have a little hint as to this man's character. If you look over at verse 29, when after the Lord's great answer embarrasses him, it says that he asked another question, who is my neighbor, in order to do what? To justify himself. He did not really seek to know Jesus' knowledge in either one of his questions. Rather, as you know, so many of his fellow religious leaders had already repeatedly attempted to do, this lawyer was hoping to ensnare Jesus. He was trying to trap Jesus. He was hoping to demonstrate that his own knowledge of matters was superior um, to, to that of Jesus's. He saw himself really, remember what the Lord had just been talking to his father about up in verse 21, about the wise and prudent? This man was really an example of one of those who thought of himself as being wise and prudent. Uh, but like all of those for him, you know, he, it was kind of the teeter-totter theology in his mind. He thought if he could put Jesus down, he would elevate himself, and he was going to be the one who would finally ensnare Jesus with something that he would uh, test him about. Anyway, um, he learned the hard way, like all those who had gone before him. Through public embarrassment, he learned that you just don't try to get crafty with the Son of God, do you? And you certainly don't try to succeed in ensnaring him with anything, much less the scripture. Well, in the answer of the Lord to this lawyer, this certain lawyer, which was done in his very typical way, how, do, how have we already found out that Jesus answers many of the questions that are posed to him? with a question of his own. Actually, in this case, with two questions of his own. Have you ever known Jewish people? This is so very typical of Jewish people. If you ask them a question, oftentimes they'll turn around. And I love the Jewish people. I, I love the Jewish people. And I pray this country always backs up and supports Israel. So you know where I'm coming from. <laughs> Biblically, that's important. He will bless those who bless Israel. That's important. But anyway, um, I had a Jewish friend all through college. Actually, he was a boyfriend. And he used to do this. Every time I'd ask him a question, he'd answer it with a question of his own. So I finally said, why, why do you always answer my questions with questions? And he said, I don't do that, do I? <laughs> just can't help it. But anyway, so Jesus, uh, Jesus answered this lawyer's question with two questions, and in doing this, we immediately once again see his great wisdom and his skill in dealing with people, whether friend or foe. He actually succeeded in getting this, this man to answer both of his own questions. He gets him to answer his questions. The first question about eternal life, and the second question about who is his neighbor. Well, in the Lord's first returned question to the lawyer, he referred him to the scripture, just as he likewise had done when Satan tempted him in the wilderness. After all, the scripture was the lawyer's expertise, right? Is what he spent his whole life studying was the scripture. So Jesus asked him what is written in the law. And this is just one more example of many in which the Lord taught that the scripture is the one and only rule 
and authority of faith and practice. Notice that he did not ask the lawyer what Rabbi so-and-so had to say about the matter. He asked um, what the doctrine or the creed of the local synagogue was in regard to the matter of eternal life. Nor did he ask the rabbi what the tradition of the elders had to say to the subject. He sent the lawyer right back to where? The God-inspired writings of the Old Testament scripture. Because that's all they had at that time was the Old Testament. He said, what is written in the law? He sent the man to the law not because the law saves men, but because it is the law that shows man his need to be saved. The law is what shows man his need for salvation. There is no such thing as conversion without conviction of sin, is there? Say yes, Catherine. There's no such thing. Or no? Yeah. Yes. No. No, say no. There is no such thing as conviction, conversion without conviction of sin. And God used the law as his means by which to convict men of their sin. The law was man's schoolmaster to teach him that there is no way whatsoever that he can keep the law. He needs what to save him? He needs God's grace to save him. He needs God's mercy to save him. He finally gets the lawyer to talk about mercy at the very end of this uh, passage for today. We'll see that. Well, in the Lord's second question, which was, what readest thou? Which means, how do you read it? We also find the Lord's wisdom and skill in dealing with men such as this lawyer. Because he used a technical little phrase or a term that the Jewish scribes and lawyers love to use with one another. And, uh, and they, you know, they love nothing better than to have debates with each other. And so they would ask each other, well, this law says so-and-so, but what do you, what's your opinion of it? Isn't that what the liberals do today? What's your opinion? Well, I see this verse as saying this. Or, well, I see it as saying this. And that's what they love to do. So basically he is saying, how do you read it? How do you interpret it? If there was one thing the lawyers and some of the other religious leaders loved to do, it was to question and challenge one another's knowledge about the law and the Talmud and the... Um, and the Mishnah, and try to prove the wisdom of one man over another by their uh, manipulation with words and ideas. They, remember how they reinterpreted the laws? We studied this when we looked at the Sermon on the Mount. They like to reinterpret all of the laws, especially the Ten Commandments, because then when they reinterpreted them, they could keep them the way they interpreted them. They couldn't keep them the way God meant them, which is what Jesus showed them. In Like, thou shalt not commit adultery. Okay, we just don't commit adultery. We'll write our little divorcement papers, and that won't be adultery. And um, But Jesus says, I say unto you that if you even look upon a woman to lust at her, after her, you have committed adultery. So they, were tri- they, they, they trifled with the truth. Everything to them was a matter of debate. It was kind of like an ongoing chess game to them. Nothing was really sacred, and they played mind games with the scripture. Now, one thing is for certain, however, the lawyer did ask, he asked the right question of Jesus. Because the matter of receiving eternal life is absolutely the most important question that anybody can ever ask about or seek the answer to. Is it not? Absolutely. But he asked the right question with the wrong motive. And it was really asked, not only with the wrong motive, as we already talked about, that he was trying to tempt Jesus to trip him up, but he he really asked the question in the wrong way as well. You see, at the root of his question was the whole works system approach to salvation. What did he ask? What shall I do to receive or to inherit eternal life? Literally, in the Greek, his question is, Master, by doing what shall I inherit eternal life? His main question was about his own works of righteousness that would so... What can I do that will so impress God that he will gladly receive me into heaven? That's what his question was all about. See, he he even used the word inherit, which tells us that he's off base a little bit because um, you don't inherit something by doing do you if you're going to inherit from your parents it's not because of what you do it's because of your relationship 
So he's got the whole idea of works, works, you know, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And we know that the scripture says that it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy that he has saved us. All of our, all of our works of righteousness, all of our deeds are what to God? But they're nothing but filthy rags. There is nothing we can do to get ourselves into heaven. Well, notice that in the lawyer's question, there's no mention whatsoever of sin or guilt. Think of the difference between he and the publican who was in the temple and prayed, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That publican recognized that he was a sinner. The lawyer was not under conviction about his own sin. Salvation to him was not an issue of deep personal concern. He already believed that he was on his way to heaven because of his Jewish blood. He believed he was already on his way to heaven because if anybody was going to get to heaven, it would be one like him who studied the scripture and dedicated his whole life to serving God. Uh, he believed he was going to go to heaven because of his, his obedience, his external obedience to the law and his position within Judaism. He was too self-righteous to see and recognize and acknowledge his own sin sickness. Furthermore, what was he really focused on here? Was he really focused on how to inherit eternal life? No, he was not focused on that at all. He was focused on trying to impress others with his own wisdom in spiritual matters and to be the one who would finally, once and for all, publicly defeat Jesus in a debate. Now, the lawyer would have had a little leather box that on occasions when he would go to pray, he would put on his forehead. And that little leather box was called phylactery. And inside of that little phylactery would be verses of scripture that they would write out and put in there. And they get that from Deuteronomy 6, which says, always keep the word of God before you. Well, they took it really literally, really put it right before them. So uh, inside of this little phylactery box would have been scriptures, two of which were Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18. And when you put those two verses together, do you know what you have? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. What comes first? With all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. And thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So it's not surprising that in immediate response to Jesus' questions, the lawyer, without any hesitation, summarized what the law demanded. The Jews, you see, were required to recite those two verses in their morning and in their evening prayers. But I thought it was interesting that these verses are still read today in Jewish synagogues in the morning and the evening prayers. I shouldn't say verses because they read the one about thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. But they do not any longer read the one thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Isn't that interesting? So in the law of God, we learn that we are to love God supremely. I mean, this is, this is all about a personal relationship, right, with the living God. We're to love him supremely. It's, it's not a distant relationship like Muslims have with Allah and other religions have with their quote-unquote gods. This is all about a personal relationship. Loving God is alive. It's a real relationship. It's a living relationship. It's active. It's not dead and inactive. Now, four of the Ten Commandments, you know, we find the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Four of the ten are summarized as being the, the great and first commandment. Remember, Jesus is going to be asked, we haven't gotten there yet, but in Matthew chapter 22, verse 36, another lawyer pops up. The lawyers were as ubiquitous as the Pharisees, but one pops up and asks Jesus, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And what was the Lord's answer? He said that the great and first commandment is, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. And that really summarizes the, um, not the first four, the first five. Well, it may not be in order, but five of the ten commandments are summarized in that. Because if you love God with all of your being, then you are going to, what? Obey him. 
He that loveth me obeys my commandments. If you really love God, you're going to seek to obey him to the best of your ability. Therefore, you will, number one, not have any other gods before you. You will not make unto you any graven images and bow down to them and serve them. Uh, You will not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And you will want to set apart one day a week to to worship and, and honor him, right? The other six of the Ten Commandments are summarized by the second great commandment, which Jesus said was, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. He said that those two, the first one is the great uh, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. The second one, you shall love their, the, the, um, your neighbor as yourself. That those two really summarize the entire Old Testament. He said, this is in Matthew twenty-two forty. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So he's saying the whole Old Testament you can summarize with those two commandments. So he's saying, all right, Mr. Lawyer and Mr. Religionist and Mr. Self-Righteous Worker, if you want to obtain eternal life by doing something, if that's your way of wanting to obtain eternal life by doing something, then keep these two great commandments and keep them perfectly every single day of your life. In, in every word that you say, every thought that you think, every motive that you have, every attitude, and every deed that you do. Love God with absolutely no reservation whatsoever. Have God always completely on the throne of your life. And love him with every ounce of everything that you have and completely love your neighbors as yourself. And then, guess what? Then you can receive eternal life. You want to do something? All right, then obey the law perfectly. And that's exactly what he told the lawyer. Look at verse 28. Thou hast answered right. This do, and thou shalt live. Of course, that's the clincher, isn't it, ladies? (laughs) Nobody can perfectly keep the Ten Commandments. Just the Ten. Forget the rest of the commandments. Nobody can perfectly keep the Ten Commandments. And if there's anything we learned in our Sermon on the Mount study, it was just that. That nobody can keep just those. <clears throat> Who could ever claim that they could love God so perfectly that you love him with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength and all of your mind? And then there's that second commandment that had to be thrown in about loving your neighbor as yourself. You know, loving God is abstract. I could say to you, yes, I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you'd have no way to prove that, would you? It can't be seen. Loving God can't be seen or understood standing by itself. Our genuine love for God has to be demonstrated just as his love for us had to be demonstrated. How would we know that he loved us if he never did anything about his love? If he just stayed up there in heaven and loved us? He had to demonstrate that love. And how did he demonstrate that love? For he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. The way he wants you and I to show our love for him is by obeying his word which includes of course loving his son and uh, listening to his son and obeying his son and uh, submitting to his son and etc etc and loving our fellow man loving the brethren loving our neighbor even loving remember what he threw in loving our enemies or even to love our enemies. If our relationship with God is right, in other words, if our, if our vertical relationship with God is right, then we will love others. If our vertical relationship is right, our horizontal relationship with our fellow man will be right. So therefore, a person that, who says he loves God, but hates or acts unkindly toward his fellow man, his neighbors, has a profession of religion only. Just listen. All I'm going to do is just give you some of the scripture passages on this subject, and um, they speak for themselves, and then, we'll, and then we'll move on to learn of Jesus' answer to the lawyer's next question. But here's one such verse. Owe no man anything but to love one another, for he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. 
for this, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. You see, if you love your neighbor as yourself, you're not going to commit adultery with your, with your neighbor's wife, right? You're not going to kill your neighbor. You're not going to bear false witness against your neighbor. You're not going to covet what's your neighbor's. He says, if there be any commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Love is the fulfilling of the law. That's in Romans, by the way. Chapter 13. This is in 1 John 3:14. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. You want to ever examine yourself to see if you truly have passed from life to death? Do you love the brethren? Do you love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you look forward to coming to church to seeing them and fellowshipping with them? That's a good indication that you've passed from life from death to life. All right, 1 John 4.20. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And then there's Matthew 5.44, right from the Sermon on the Mount. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. And John 13.35, but by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye, what, have love one to another. And Galatians 5.14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. That's pretty convicting and convincing, isn't it? All right, sensing strongly that Jesus was implying that he did not have eternal life because he had not fulfilled the law. You know, Jesus said to the Lord, this do and thou shalt live. So sensing very strongly that the Lord was saying he didn't obey the law and therefore he didn't have eternal life, the lawyer immediately sought to justify himself. That's what we are told in verse 29. Therefore, he asked a second supreme question. Who is my neighbor? Notice that he dropped his pursuance of his first question about receiving eternal life. As we said, he likely thought that he was doing great in that area. After all, he had dedicated his life to serving God through being a student of his word. And, of course, that would mean, in his mind, that he must love God supremely. Um, and besides, it would be too risky, really, for him to publicly challenge anything about loving God supremely. That would just really be a bad reflection on himself. So he dropped that subject. You know, it's amazing to me to think about the fact that he had no idea. Here he thought, well, I, you know, I, I surely must love God with all my heart, soul, and mind strength because I've dedicated my whole life to, to him. And here he was tempting God's very son. You know, so proving he was really in league with who? Satan, not God at all. You know, wouldn't it have been much better if after hearing the Lord's answer, which really the, the lawyer himself answered with those two supreme commandments, the lawyer had said to Jesus, you know, I, I just cannot keep the law. I have tried all my life, and I fail all the time. I can't keep it. How can I be saved? That would have been a better question instead of, who is my neighbor? <laughs> See, he's, he's thinking he's found a loophole here, and so now he's going to jump on the neighbor thing. The rabbinical teaching, you see, at the time of Christ was that Gentiles and Samaritans were not considered neighbors. Even though they lived next to them, they weren't considered neighbors. And here's some of the rabbi's own words on the subject. This is a quote. Where God saith, thou shalt love thy neighbor, he excludes all Gentiles, for they are not our neighbors, but those only that are of our own nation and religion. End of quote. And we, you know, we say, wow, that's really terrible, but how many of us do that? Same thing, you know. How many of us are neighbors, and it's easy to be neighbors to those in our own little circle of influence, in our own little church group, and, you know, to reach out to them, but, you know, we're all guilty. This, this uh, parable is very, very, very convicting. Uh, the Jews of first century Israel 
lived in their own narrow, self-centered little world. Their attitudes, as we have learned many times, toward other people who they considered unclean, erected barriers that made them anything but neighborly. You know, the other peoples, the, the Romans and the, and the Greeks, do you think they looked at the Jews and the Samaritans as being neighborly people? Not by any means. <laughs> a neighbor to them was only a fellow Jew. And we have seen numerous times how the religious rulers, such as this lawyer, uh, did not even treat other Jews very neighborly, did they? How did they look at um, uh, commoners? How, how, did they, how did they look at men like the man who had been born blind? And, and even the, in this parable we're going to look at eventually. I hope we get there today. <laughs> but in the parable, how did the, the, the um, priest and the Levite look at their fellow Jew who had been beaten on the road there? So you see, even, even though they said that neighbor equals fellow Jew, they didn't even really live up to that. Now, let me give you, um, they, well, they felt absolutely no obligation whatsoever toward Gentiles and, and Samaritans. And one example of this is that they said if a wall was to collapse on a, uh, on a man on the Sabbath day and pin that man under that crushed wall, enough of that wall could be removed to determine whether the man was a Jew or a Gentile. And if he was a Jew, then he could be helped. But if he was a Gentile, he had to stay there until the Sabbath was over, and then, then they would remove the rest of the wall from him, which would probably be too late. Terrible, isn't it? So with his very famous parable of the Good Samaritan, the Lord Jesus set about to correct this very inhuman notion of the self-righteous Jews of his day. Using a hated Samaritan as the leading part in his story, Jesus gave the lawyer God's definition of a lawyer. And that's the, I mean of a lawyer, of a neighbor. <laughs> I don't know what God's definition of a lawyer is. Um, he, he would give him a defin, God's definition of a neighbor. And don't you know that this lawyer and the whole nation of Israel needed badly to learn this definition of what is a neighbor? And so do you and I. So let's look at verses uh, 30 to 37, the Lord's teaching. <clears throat> After the man trying to justify himself asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It says in verse 30, and Jesus answering said, and notice the word certain, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. And by chance there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him... He passed by on the other side. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. And now that's the end of the parable. He turns back to the lawyer and he says, Which now of these three, of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And the lawyer said, he that showed mercy on him. Finally got the man to thinking and talking about mercy. He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. In this parable, Jesus speaks of a man traveling the approximately 17-mile rough, ragged, treacherous, winding road that connects Jerusalem with Jericho. I read a description of this road in one account, and it really goes up and down, mostly down, but it curves and it goes around mountain passes. It, it goes through a wilderness, which you can actually read about in Joshua 16.1. Um, it, it was a dangerous road. Um, Josephus actually referred to it as desolate and rocky. 
In the fourth century, Jerome called this road between Jerusalem and Jericho the Red or Bloody Way because so many people had been robbed and beaten and even murdered on this particular road. Now, if you were to go from Jerusalem to Jericho as the crow flies, it would only take, it's only about 12 miles. But because this road is so winding and everything, it actually was a 17-mile long road. The road still exists today. Now, what I want to make you know is that there is a difference in elevation between Jerusalem and Jericho. <clears throat> this man who's, who got beaten was on his way, we are told in verse 30, from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, Jerusalem, you know, is up on, in, a, in the hills. And no matter where you come from and you're going to Jerusalem, it always says up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem sits up on a hill. And Jerusalem sits at a level of 2,300 feet Yesterday I said miles, not that high, 2,300 feet above sea level. So it's up there. But Jericho is right near the Dead Sea. And do you know the Dead Sea is the lowest place on planet Earth? The Dead Sea is actually below sea level. So Jericho is at a uh, level of 600 feet below sea level. So the difference is, when you go from Jerusalem to Jericho, the difference is about 3,000 feet. So when Jesus said that a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he really meant down. That road went down, 3,000 feet, down, down, down. It'd be easy going down, especially if you had a skateboard, but boy, it'd be a trip going up. <laughs> now this man, this certain man, symbolizes for us the spiritual condition of all sinners because the path of sin is always downward. The path of sin is never upward, it is always downward. This man had his back to Jerusalem. He had left Jerusalem, his back was to Jerusalem, the holy city, and he was headed downward toward Jericho, which is a city associated with a curse. You can read it was a bad city. It may, and by the way, I have been to the rebuilt Jericho. The walls came a-tumbling down, and jo you know, when Joshua destroyed Jericho, well, God destroyed Jericho, but they rebuilt it. And now about a mile away from the other Jericho, maybe it's not even a mile, they rebuilt Jericho. So at the time of Jesus, Jericho had been rebuilt. I have been there. It is a very attractive city. I remember that's the first place I got on a camel. I'll never forget that. <laughs> Probably some of you have been to Jericho, haven't you? It's, it's, a, it's got a lot of uh, palm trees. Jericho may have been attractive with all of its many palms and its oases, etc., but it had many problems that spoiled its attractiveness. Well, somewhere on his way down to Jericho, we are told that this man fell among thieves. And the word fell reminds us of the fall of man in the garden. The fall of man was not the rise of man, was it? It was the fall of man. Um, the devil had promised man that if he disobeyed God, it would make him as a God. But it didn't do that. It wasn't the rise of man. It took man down. You see, it's not all about evolution. Man is not getting better and better and becoming more like God. It's all about devolution. Evil men are waxing worse and worse. Sin is the great thief of all time because it deprives man of the best things of life. And it's deceitful. Sin is very... Wasn't Satan very deceitful? Disguising himself as a beautiful serpent. Don't you know that these thieves on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho were very deceitful? I'm sure they were hiding around rock... Uh, hiding behind rocks and uh, a curve in the road or somewhere. And what they would do is they would just suddenly jump out and pounce on their victim. Sin is just like that. It's deceitful. Right after man's fall in the Garden of Eden, the thief of, thief of sin stripped him of his raiment, just as the highwaymen on the Jericho Road did with their victim. Adam and Eve were immediately stripped of their covering, their garment of God's righteousness, and their covering of their own pure innocence. And what did they immediately feel? Sense that they were naked. This parabolic traveler uh, was not only left naked, but he was 
we can be sure of this, he was robbed of his money and of his other possessions. And then that wasn't enough for the thieves. They didn't just leave him robbed and naked, but they went and wounded him. And the word wounded in the Greek is a word we get our word trauma from. He was traumatized, traumatized so badly that he was left there half dead. He must have presented a very pathetic sight along that roadside because there he was lying naked and beaten and bloody and nearly dead, half dead, nearly dead. Sin is like that. Sin causes great pain and discomfort. Sin causes grief. Sin causes heartaches and anguish and despair. Because of sin, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain, Romans 8.22. Sin may promise all kinds of great pleasures. I'm sure this man, as he was on his way down to Jericho, was looking forward to those uh, little bars there at the side of the, the oasis and all the pleasures that Jericho had to offer. Sin promises all kinds of pleasures, but it is a deceptive thief that will ultimately kill you. Sin left Adam and Eve half dead, right? Because sin left them dead spiritually. They were immediately dead spiritually. And even though they didn't die physically at that point in time, they certainly began the dying process because the wages of sin is death. The traveler was so disabled by his fall into the hands of these deceptive thieves that he was left utterly helpless. When evil is done with you, it leaves you just like this. It leaves you empty and naked and dying. It leaves you to your own troubles and it does not ever come back to rescue you. Do you think these thieves and robbers had any intention of coming back to rescue the man they had just beaten? No. It laughs. Evil laughs at your despair. Now he's totally at the mercy of others who might pass by to save him because he's utterly helpless and hopeless. There's nothing he can do at all to save himself. And that's just how sinners, all of us are. Sinners are also without strength, Romans 5, 6, to save ourselves. Someone else else must come along and save us, right? But who? Who? Aren't you glad? that Jesus Christ, he is. He's the only one. He is the ultimate good shepherd and he is the ultimate good Samaritan. Well, since the temple was in Jerusalem and Jericho was at the time of Christ the residence of some 12,000 priests and Levites. Why they chose to live there in that cursed city, I don't know, but that's where they lived. 12,000 priests and Levites lived in Jericho instead of living in Jerusalem. Because of that, this rough highway road between those two locations was often frequented by priests and Levites. They were constantly going back and forth on this road to attend to their duties in the temple and going there for, you know, the various feast days. So this parable was a very likely, it could have really been a true story, very likely. Um, however, the wise thing to have done would have been to travel in at least twos. Remember, that's how the Lord sent out his own men, so that they would be more protected to send them out in pairs. So usually, you know, someone would say to the other one, I'm gonna, I have to go to Jerusalem today, will you go with me? So they at least usually traveled in groups or in caravans. But for the Lord's own purposes in this particular parable, he has each of the four men in the story... The, the victim, the priest, the Levite, and the Samaritan traveling by themselves. And again, that would be rather appropriate f- for the symbolism of this because each of us essentially travels this highway of life alone, don't we? I mean, we have family and friends, but essentially we're on our own. We travel it alone until the good Samaritan comes along and accompanies us. Well, now as the victim is lying on the side of the road, there came along two men, not together, but separately. Both saw the man and both did what? They passed by on the other side of the road. They didn't lift a finger to help him. The first man was a priest. He saw him, it tells us in verse 31, but when he saw him, he simply crossed over to the other side of the road and passed by him. He didn't even stop to see if the man was alive. You know, he saw him, whoop, I didn't see him, and he walked, crosses over and goes right on. He didn't see the providence of God, did he? That God had that man there as a divine appointment for him to stop and help him and show, you know, that that he loves his neighbor as himself. 
Um, so he, he just passed right by. He didn't even cover him up, which if he did obey the law, he should have done, because you can read Isaiah 58, 7, and it says he should at least have covered him up and made him more comfortable. But he didn't do a single thing. Now, some have suggested that he might have thought the man was dead, and he didn't want to touch him because if he touched him, he would be considered ceremonially unclean for the next seven days. And we say, okay, well, that's a good excuse if it's not ever a good excuse because God never puts ceremonial purity above helping a fellow man out in distress, does he? But we could at least say, well, that would be a little bit of excuse if he was on his way to Jerusalem to serve in the temple. But he wasn't. You know what it says? Look at verse 31. By chance there came down a certain priest. He was finished with his duties in Jerusalem. He was on his way down to Jericho. He was on his way home. So get rid of that little excuse. (laughs) No good there. Maybe the man, maybe the priest said to himself, and we know he rationalized everything in his own mind, but maybe he said, I'm a priest. I'm not a paramedic. But anyway, bad excuse. You like that one, huh? Next comes along a Levite, and uh, Jesus said that when he was in the place where the man lay, he came over and he looked upon him. Now, he did a little more than just saw him, you know, and, and went over to the other side. He actually went over and looked. Look means he, he uh, gazed upon him. And then when he gazed upon him, he too crossed over to the other side of the road and passed by doing nothing whatsoever to help the man. Even though both the priest and the Levite by their occupations, had recognized the claim of God on their lives, they both totally failed to recognize the claims of humanity on their lives. We cannot claim to love God, as we just read about in many scriptures. We can't claim to love God and remain indifferent to our fellow man. Both men, we know because they were able to make a 17-mile trip on this rough, rugged road. Both of them were healthy enough to be able to assist this man in some way. You know, to go over, I'm sure maybe they had a beast of burden, just like the Samaritan had, maybe a camel, maybe a donkey. They, they were healthy enough. They could have lifted the man and put him on their own beast and taken him at least with them. So they were healthy enough. We also know by their social positions in society that both of them financially were able to help the man. But obviously they came up with all all kinds of mental excuses as why not to help him. Maybe they saw that he was a Gentile. He was laying there naked. Maybe they saw he was uncircumcised and said, well, we can't help him. He's a Gentile. We don't, we're under no obligation whatsoever. However, I do not think the man was a Gentile. I think the man, because he was coming from Jerusalem, was also a Jew. Most Bible commentators think that the man was a Jew, and this makes it even all the more pathetic that they didn't even see him as a neighbor and that the Samaritan did. Because the Jews hated the Samaritans. I believe he was, a, he was a Jew. But maybe they felt too afraid to stop along the way, lest the robbers were still hiding nearby and um, were using the man as their bait, and they would pop out and attack them. You know, it could get dark while they're trying to help him, and then they would really be potential bait for the highwaymen. Maybe they rationalized their behavior by telling themselves that they had already done their service to God in the temple. You know, they were coming from the temple. God would already be happy with them. God would be pleased. They were his servants, and besides, they were tired, and they were too important to society. They were important to society. They couldn't dare risk themselves on this uh, utter stranger, this total stranger. And guess what? Dinner was waiting for them at home. Mama and the kids were waiting. They, the, you know, Their family needed them. They couldn't risk their lives with this guy. Besides this, according to their own perspective on things, as we learned in our study of the man who had been born blind, this guy's circumstances, according to their thinking, the Jewish thinking, was uh, divinely permitted as judgment for some sin in his life. This must have been a bad dude. They'd see him laying there. Hmm. He's being, I better not interfere with what God is doing in his life. He's only reaping, it's working, he's only reaping what he had sown. But I'm going to give them a little bit of a benefit, the benefit of the doubt and say that maybe as they did pass by the man, they lifted up a prayer for him. Something like, oh, Lord God, I thank thee that I am not like this other man. As the, remember, that's how the self-righteous Pharisee prayed. <laughs> in, in the temple in Luke 18. 
The despicableness of their sin is really that if anyone should have helped this man, who should it have been? These supposed uh, spiritual men. Uh, the, the, um, the shepherds of the flock. Of course, we know they were, they were false shepherds. They were hirelings. <clears throat> but then remember how similar men had fussed whenever Jesus had made somebody whole and healthy on the Sabbath day. So we, we know that they were a little bit lacking in the compassion category, weren't they? They were. But you know what? We always look at them and then we think, oh, how horrible. But there are so many times when we are really just like these men. How many times have you and I passed somebody in need? You know, we've looked the other way. We've passed by on the other side. And we say maybe something like, well, I'm in a hurry. I've got to get my children from school. Or I'm going to be late for church. Or I just can't get involved. I don't have enough time. Lord, they don't deserve my help. They brought this on themselves. But you know, the Lord in this parable, through the example of the Good Samaritan, who I hope we're going to look at in a minute, teaches us that the point is not who deserves our help but who needs our help. They just uh, may have brought the trouble upon themselves. You know, this man was on his way down, down to Jericho. A lot of people have brought their own troubles upon themselves um, on their downward journeys to Jericho. But we, too, have brought much of our troubles on ourselves, haven't we? And aren't you glad that the Lord was merciful unto us? Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Well, the priest and the Levite in this, in this parable <clears throat> represent, of course, the spiritual leaders of the, of the nation. And as I said, they were merely hireling shepherds of the flock who really cared absolutely nothing for the people. They had no compassion for the sheep. They cared only for their own reputations and their own positions. Of course, there were exceptions, but in general. The priest and the Levite perhaps represented the law and the sacrificial system of Judaism at that time, what they had made Judaism into, neither of which saved anyone from their dying condition. Or perhaps they could represent traditionalism and ceremonialism. Or perhaps we could say they represent the moral law and the legal law, either of which, again, never saved anyone, but so to speak, passed by on the other side. It really doesn't matter what they represent because whatever it is, it is merely external, something external, something which could not alleviate the desperate spirit condition of Israel or the world or couldn't in, their, in this situation couldn't help this man. Now, if this man could have seen himself reflected in the eyes of uh, the Levite, let's say, who came over and looked at him. The man, like with the law, could have seen his desperate condition reflected in the man's eyes. That's what the law does, right? He could have seen himself reflected there. But when we look into the law, we see how destitute we are. We see how miserable, naked, and helpless we are. And that's why we need Christ. That's what we realize, how much we need a Savior. Well, fortunately, for this fellow sojourner, this fallen sojourner, there was a man, there was a certain Samaritan who also came along and did not pass him by. When he saw the man laying there, he had what on him? Compassion, just like our good Samaritan, the Lord Jesus Christ. He was so unlike the priest and the, the Levite. He went over to the man. He saw him immediately, had compassion on him. He went over to him, and he bound up our wounds. Does not that sound like the compassionate Son of God? You see, just like the Samaritans, Jesus himself was despised and rejected of men. That's why I think he called himself here, you know, the good Samaritan. Even though he was Jewish, he wasn't a Samaritan. Yet his own people, the Jews, despised him. The good Samaritan did not avoid the dying man. He went to help him because he had compassion on him. Jesus likewise came to earth to seek and to save that which was dying because we were all dead in our trespasses and sins. He came to heal the brokenhearted and to what? Bind up their wounds. You see, when the Samaritan poured oil and wine onto the man's wounds, and all travelers used to carry with them oil and wine because they were, they were thought to have, and they did have to a degree, medicinal benefits. 
And so the Levite and the priest would have had oil and wine with them, too. They could have done this for the man. But when he poured oil and wine onto the man's sin, one was to soothe his wounds, that was the oil, and the other was to disinfect his wounds, and that was the, um, the wine. And this is a picture of both the comforting and the cleansing work of God. You see, oil in the Bible is a picture of the Spirit who Jesus himself called the comforter in John 14:16 and wine in the bible is a picture of the blood of Christ which cleanses us from all sins so this is a picture of the comforting and cleansing work of God in salvation the good samaritan lived by the golden rule what is the golden rule as ye would that men should do to you do ye also unto them. When the Samaritan saw the man on the side of the road, half dead, he put himself in the man's place. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He knew that he would, if he was in that man's place, he would want someone to show compassion on him and to help him. So he instantly knew, because he had the law written in his heart, he knew what he had to do if he was going to love his neighbor as himself. And most interesting is that this man was probably Jewish, and yet he helped him anyway, knowing that maybe the man later, when he came to, if he was unconscious, Uh, would hate the fact that he had been saved by a Samaritan. Maybe he did. Now, I I would find that hard to believe, but maybe he resented the fact that he was helped by a Samaritan. Uh, But he helped him anyway. Um, He helped someone who could not, in his condition, even probably thank him. Someone who had no means whatsoever to pay him back. He did it without expecting any reward or any honor. And he did it at a cost to himself. Think what it cost the Samaritan. It cost him his time. It, it probably cost him a delay. We don't, I don't know which way he was going, but whichever way, it cost him a delay because he even spent the night with the man at the inn. It cost him uh, not only time and delay, but energy. It was an inconvenience for him. Sometimes we have to be inconvenienced by the needy in our lives. that The Lord brings across our paths, right? It's an inconvenience. But he did it anyway because the law of loving his neighbor as himself was right. It was written in his heart. And it cost him supplies. We know that. It cost him his oil and his wine. And it cost him money because he gave the, uh, the innkeeper two pence, which was two days' wages. And then he said, you know, I'll come back and pay you whatever other expenses that might incur in the the meantime. It also cost him the risk of his own life because there could have been robbers behind the rocks using that man as bait. Well, we find that after dressing the man's wounds, the Samaritan put him on his own beast. And you know what that meant? It meant the man himself had to walk. He had to walk. And he took the man to an inn, and he continued to take care of him. In fact, he did spend the night watching over him. And on the next day, as he was checking out, he gave the host of the inn two pence, and he told him to take care of the wounded man. And if it cost him more than those two pence, two days' labors, that he would come back and and, uh, repay him whatever else he owed him. He did promise that he would come again. I love that. (laughs) The host now of the inn... And here Jesus is lifting up an innkeeper, you know, because the first innkeeper has a bad reputation because he had no room at the inn, did he? And now here's a good innkeeper. The innkeeper must have sensed this man's character in order to trust him in such a way that he would pay him, you know, recompense uh, um, any costs when he came back. And this is just like Christ, because Christ put all the expense of our cure on himself. On he put it all on his account, just as the Samaritan in this parable did. And the promise of his return, you see, would motivate the innkeeper in the meantime to do a good job, you know, to take care of this sheep entrusted to his care. As does the promised return of Christ compel you and I to serve and to take care of those who he has entrusted to our care until he comes again. And let us not forget that Jesus Christ will compensate those who serve him. No one will ever faithfully and honestly serve the Lord and be shortchanged. He, he never shortchanges anybody. Now, who does shortchange you every time? Satan. 
will shortchange you every time, but not the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, after presenting the parable, Jesus asked the lawyer, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him? He didn't ask, you know, as the, as the lawyer had, had asked, whose neighbor was this man? Because if he had asked that question, whose neighbor was this man, really? This was probably a Jewish man. Whose neighbor was? It would have been either the priest or the Levite. But instead, Jesus asked the question, which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell amongst the thieves? The question Jesus was saying was not should be, uh, who is my neighbor? But the question should be, whose neighbor am I? Because the Samaritan really wouldn't have been this man's neighbor according to their definition. So it's a good way he worded the question here. And again, the Lord was making this lawyer answer his own question. I love that. So he, he, um, he again, Jesus got this lawyer to answer his own question by again asking him a question. And even though the hero of this story was a despicable Samaritan, the lawyer had to answer the question properly or all the people around there would say, well, this lawyer's not very smart at all. And he wanted to, you know, one thing he wanted was to prove his, his, his smartness. So he had to answer the question right. He knew who, who the neighbor was in this story. But notice that he wouldn't use the name Samaritan. He just wouldn't, he couldn't get it out of his lips. So he said, he that showed mercy on him. Hmm. At least he was talking about mercy. Now, I don't know whatever happened with this lawyer. You know, it says later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul said that some that tempted Jesus were, um, what was it, bitten by serpents? I hope he didn't get bitten by a serpent. I hope that he really thought about all the Lord had taught him and that, you know, he eventually got saved. But we don't know. It just leaves us hanging. But I do know that true neighborliness reveals itself in mercy without asking or without seeing who a person is or what relation he has to us. Be in your spirit neighborly. And then you know what? Every man will be your neighbor. If you're in your spirit neighborly, everyone will be your neighbor. I'm glad that the Lord Jesus saw the whole, all of humanity as his neighbor, aren't you? If a man doesn't demonstrate mercy to his fellow man, then he's really proving that he has not experientially known the mercy of God extended to him in salvation. Jesus was, in effect, saying to this lawyer through the parable, if you are who you think you are, Mr. Lawyer, if you are a righteous, saved man, and if you really love God with all of your heart and your mind and your strength and your soul, then you will love others. You will find your neighbor in the person you might otherwise have overlooked, and you will have a compassion and a love for souls regardless of who a person is, regardless of their status. You see, our duty is not to define who our neighbor is. Our duty is just to be the kind of person who never passes by on the other side when we see somebody in need, right? All right. So go and do thou likewise, as the Good Samaritan did. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus did have compassion on our helpless situation as we were all collectively lying on the highway of life, all victims of our own ruthless enemies, sin, Satan, and death, and that he placed our needs above his own, so much more even than the Samaritan of this parable that he was willing to die in our place. Thank you, Lord, that he um, applied his shed blood to our spiritual wounds, and then he poured his spirit upon us to comfort us. Father, may we now, each of us, be ever ready and ever willing to demonstrate that same mercy and that same compassion toward those who are yet dying along the roads of life. And thank you, too, for, for your promise to come again. And we, we just look forward to that so much. And may we not be found ashamed at the time of your appearing. Help us, Lord, to truly love you with every bit of our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. For we pray in your blessed name, Jesus. Amen.